0: Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers.
1: To keep you writing, I'm Marshall.
0: I'm Nick. I'm Brent.
1: And I'm Boyle.
0: Everybody, we're here. Let's do this. Are you excited? We may be. Yes, I, I'm amped.
2: <laughs> so, Let's
0: this is our go. first episode that's not um, uh, around a book. So, this is the long awaited editing episode that we're going to tackle. And we're going to put Brent under the spotlight here and uh, talk about editing. I cannot wait to see what happens. Will's going to drive the ship, so to speak. So I'm going to let him, I'm going to turn it over to you. What you got,
1: buddy? Great. So Brent, first, I want you to describe your editing career in three words. Oh my God, Um, I'm so
0: glad you asked that.
2: (laughs) Okay, three words. Uh, Unexpected, enlightening, and um gratifying yeah
1: great so let's talk about those three words let's unpack them the first okay. one was unexpected yes so what talk to me about that
2: so um i it wasn't a role i ever thought i was coming into like when i first started on this sort of like publishing journey i guess i always just saw myself as a writer and, you know, I was like, that's what I do. Like, that's my main focus. I never really thought of myself as an editor, but it kind of sort of grew organically, I guess, out of, um, out of me being, you know, giving people feedback, uh, talking to people about their stories, helping them deconstruct them, like back and forth conversations. And eventually that helped me, I guess, build the relationships that eventually found me with fire and found me in their slush. And then, you know, I had to pull away from that slush for a little bit. And um, eventually, you know, I didn't really think about editing anymore until Tor.com came to the magazine last year and was like, hey, we, we want to work with you guys. We want to do an anthology. And um, Devon couldn't do it alone. And we didn't want to pass up the opportunity. So I was like, I'll jump in. Why not? Let's see what happens. And um, yeah, so was not, I guess it wasn't my plan, but here I am.
1: And the next word?
2: Was enlightening, I think. Yes, enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, So I say it's enlightening because it has really allowed me to deal better with rejection as a writer. Because I got to see what it's like on the other side and really kind of like digest Um the hard choices, the, the things you wish you could have taken on the, um, you know, just, just, I, I got to see the other side of the veil, And so it helped me in terms of like being a writer, understanding that nine times out of 10, the rejection is not about you. Like it's not, it's not, it's nothing personal. And, um, that kind of really that elevated my not only my confidence as a writer but also like my ability to keep producing through adversity so yeah
1: and the next one ooh what did i say i can't remember
2: for the third was it um gratifying gratifying yes gratifying yes. yes okay gratifying because i when i first came into you know publishing and i think this is just probably me in general but i like to help people i like to I like to try to create space for people. And, and, you know, if I can, if I can lend a hand, I like doing that, And I think that's in any aspect of my life, but especially in writing and being an editor, to me, it's like what it was actually it actually fills me with a lot of joy whenever I see a writer tell me, oh, you got my story or "Oh, the things that you saw in my story are the ways you wanted me to tweak it were really helpful and they really like made me, made my writing shine. And, you know, that, that's thanks in its own, like helping other writers be their best selves is like, yeah, it's like, is it, it's his own, it's his own reward.
1: Awesome. So, you know, let's talk about what you think the role is for a professional editor.
2: To, okay. So for I, and again I, you know I guess I have to preface everything I'm saying for anyone listening is your mileage may vary so what I'm saying isn't gospel but I'm going by my you know my experience um I feel like the role of a professional editor is to take the story and elevate it not to my taste or not to not to what I see the story as but to what I see the writer trying to do with their story where I see their vision you know and trying to help them Get to, the, get to the best version of their vision. Like, I think that is my primary role. Like, it's not about me. It's about me trying to help that writer elevate, what, elevate their work in a way that they're satisfied with.
1: So that's interesting then to me, because when you talk about that, it's really about elevating the writer's story and getting them to write the story to like a higher potential how does your world view go into that because there has to be something that you identify or that you connect to the story while you're editing it so how can you differentiate that type of energy so
2: you know it's it's i'll be honest it's hard and the the first thing you have to do and i think as an editor is flat out admit you have biases, you have blind spots, you have things that you're not so great at, things that you know you don't necessarily think about. And once you recognize that and and you're humble about it, I think you can from that space you can kind of try to catch yourself or at least you know as best as you can when you're editing those stories and making sure that it's not you inserting your bias into into what you think the work should look like. And it's hard, I'm not even gonna sit here and make it seem like it's an easy task, because it's not, like... And we were talking about it on um, the Clarion panel I was on last night, and uh, one of the panelists, they, they just said, they said it, they were like, you know, if you don't admit your biases, if you don't admit that you have them, you're going to regurgitate the same kind of work. So, it's, it's no mistake that people who don't analyze their biases tend to tend to have the same sort of stories that come out from them that they're editing or that they're uplifting. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I feel like um, you have to you have to be cognizant of the fact that you are a biased individual and that, you know, you come with some set of privileges and you have to be aware of that when, you know, deconstructing stories or working with someone to edit a story. And I think part of that is um, as an editor, you have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to understand that like if, if a writer's pushing back, it's not always because, you know, they just don't get it. Or it's like, are they being difficult? You know, they there, there's validity in, especially when you consider the power dynamic, if a writer's pushing back on the editor more than likely, there's a reason for it. So I think the, the best way to avoid overbearing bias is to make sure that writers understand from the beginning of the editorial process that you have a voice. If you don't like something I'm telling you or if you don't think I'm getting something, feel empowered to tell me that. Yeah, I guess that yeah, that's a long-winded answer, but yeah.
1: So let's talk about your own biases, right? How do you check yourself? Like, how do you, as an editor, look inward and say, you know, these are the things that I'm biased on. How can I still do my job well while looking at the things that I'm biased on?
2: I think you have to be intentional. And um, I was saying this uh, yesterday as well in regards to um, how we run the convention, FireCon. It's like you have to have a – I think you have to have a – you want to be intentional, like you want to set out to make sure that you are covering as many voices as you can, and also taking inventory of yourself and what you've done in the past and looking at, okay, what, what, who haven't I given the spot to? or Who haven't I highlighted? And, you know, understanding that um, if you haven't highlighted a certain person, it, it could be a bias. It could be you just haven't gotten the right story yet, but you have to be honest with yourself about what that is. Like, if, if, for instance, when we did brief fire, if every single writer that we chose was a black American and also male out of 300 something submissions, that would be a bias. So that'd be something, you know, you would, you have to kind of, you have to kind of catch yourself. And I guess for me, my strategy with that is that. I don't like to send out rejections really quickly because I want to look at the full scope of what I have in front of me in terms of like the stories that were almost there, the stories I really loved, the stories that might need a little work and kind of look at the full spread of them and see, okay, is all the stories that I'm saying need a little work? Are they all um, African writers? If that's the case, then... Maybe it's not that they need a little work. Maybe it's a bias in me not understanding the storytelling. So I try to like at least my method is that I don't like to quickly reject stuff because I want to see the full spread of what's been kind of what's been offered to me and um, make my choices from there. And I, I can speak a little bit for the fire team here, but I know there have been times where they've chosen stories that needed a good bit more work, but they chose it because. They wanted that type of writer to be within the issue. So I think, yeah, you just got to be intentional and you got to be willing to do the work. You got to be willing to do the extra mile in terms of like building, getting past your biases, I guess. And unfortunately, with the rest of the publishing industry, it's a little too easy to not address biases. And unfortunately, a lot of that work falls on BIPOC editors in particular to try to to try to dismantle some of this stuff.
1: I'm glad you brought up BIPOC editors because I want to flip it for a minute. Because you work so heavily with um Via and and like with the magazine and you know you're doing escape pod for Black Future Month. Has there been a time when you are editing someone who is not part of the BIPOC community when you really have to center yourself and how much can you, one, maybe educate that person? Like, do you waste your breath on it? Um, And also, you know, how can, does your biases come in effect with the other, with anyone who's the other of without your social realm?
2: So, yeah. So, um, usually if it's someone who's like not BIPOC or, or white, if, if they're asking me to look at their work and give them feedback and so on and so forth, um... I usually consider the level of the relationship because I'm not gonna I, I'm not gonna do it for just any random white person who wants to send me their work. Just because I've been burnt by that before and I think many of us have been, where it's just like, you know, they'll send us their work. And actually I remember this was I wasn't a professional editor back then, but this was like years ago. I had this um this white woman, she sent me her novel. Uh, I gave her this detailed feedback. I went through it and she completely ghosted. And and I knew yeah. it was because I was pointing out things that were like, hey, you know, this is a little insensitive. This is, you know, think about this, think about this choice. And this, um, I gave her this extensive feedback, completely ghosted. And, you know, that example really stuck out to me because it was just like, oh, you wanted my validation. You didn't want my actual feedback. And that's unfortunately what I run into with a lot of white people who reach out for feedback. they just want to get the they want to get the check mark from the black person they' they're not actually looking for a real substantive feedback, so I don't do it often I guess, not unless I'm getting paid if you're gonna pay me to do it then I'll do it but <laughs> well,
0: yeah, and that was my kind of question on that too do you find is that i i don't want I don't want to preface this wrong but do you find that to be more often than not that they it's for validation or they're trying to get a sneaky sensitivity read out of you or something like that? Like if it's a white person asking you directly for edit, you know, editing feedback.
2: The less I know them, the more I assume it's for like a validation because Mm. the, if they actually know me and they, they, you know, we interact, they know where they know where I stand on things and they know I'm going to point out and, and how I give feedback already. So Mm. yeah, I guess that that's what I would say. The less I know them, the more likely they are just looking for a quick check Mark.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk about BIPOC editors. So everything that you're saying, you know, with the other editors that you've worked with in the industry who weren't bipoc, do you feel like now that they are understanding the heavy lifting that you have to do as someone who is part of the bipoc community and editing stories
2: so um, I'm working with Dave Ring right now, and he is actually he is fantastic like he totally. I'm. He's he's receptive to like everything I've said and everything I've wanted to do with this story, and you know, his suggestions have all been have all been like just spot on. Like I've I've worked I worked with him on my flash fiction piece, which was a, a great experience, and I'm working with him on the novella, which was a great experience. So I, I think I've lucked up. I also worked with um Scott Andrews for my Beneath of the Sky story. Um, it hasn't come out yet, but. Working with him was um yeah, that was that was that was a really good experience too. So so far I've left up. Now I have heard horror stories. I can I can give you horror stories if, if 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 uh you want. They just aren't my horror stories, I guess.
1: No, like I really want this to be about like your perspective and your journey. Yeah. Because I think it's important I think it's important for people well, twofold. I think it's important that people hear, like, what as a professional editor, the things that you're saying about, you know, don't take it personal. Sometimes there's stories you love, but it just wouldn't fit with what you're doing. But I also think it's really important to talk about biases. And I also think it's really important that people hear how much heavy lifting BIPOC editors, and we all know as well as writers, have to sometimes do this heavy lifting and think about things that other white people, let's be honest, don't automatically think about because of the way our social structure is built.
2: Yeah. In well, the world. so I can, I can kind of bring, I guess I'll bring this up too. So um, I'm currently um, a freelancer for a tour with like on the novella side. The reason I never publicly announced it on Twitter was that when my friend did she was bombarded by angry ass white people asking her, mm. well, why do you only want BIPOC writers submitting? Why can't I submit? When are you going to ask for white writers? And I saw that and I was like, I'll be damned if I announce it and have to deal with that shit. So mm-hmm. it's like we can't even, I can't even celebrate things sometimes because I have to be cognizant of how angry white people will get about it.
1: Let me ask you this. So for your freelance editing at Tor, is it specifically that they wanted you to edit BIPOC authors or is that something that you specifically wanted to do?
2: Okay, so that's not even what Tor asked us. Tor was like literally like Breathe Fire was great. We loved Breathe Fire. It was amazing. Would you like to potentially, you know, be a freelancer? And it was like, yeah, this is great. Cool. And they said, you know, you can reach out to anybody. And um, bring them, bring them in, and we'll we'll give it a look and see if you know we like it. But yeah. my friend, she just wanted to focus on BIPOC writers, and she you know made that clear. And so the shitstorm commenced.
1: Nick, you have a question. Yeah. So
3: I mean, as as a white writer, like it's kind of frustrating hearing that there's a community of us out there that. Go all up in arms when an editor, magazine, or someone is like, "Hey, I'm specifically looking for this." Uh, to me, that's just that's just frustrating. Um, and I, Brent, I mean, we've known you for a while. I've known you for a while here, and I know like the, it's not bore of any ill attention or anything like that. Like there's there's a large gap um, between what's been out there for the white community and what's not out there for. Uh, what you're after, right? Can you kind of talk through a little bit more, like how do you how do you handle that in a professional setting when when that comes across? Well, if I can, did, I, uh,
1: I, can I say yeah. something for a minute. I just want to say that there is no white community. There's not. Okay, there's not, and I'm not yelling at you, Nick. But I want I just people to, to understand. To be nice. I, no, I know, but I want people to understand this. There is no white community. No. Okay. Okay. Because. Say if you're white and you're getting together with other whites, that's just racist.
2: <laughs> I mean, well, Period. okay. So my perspective on that though, is that I, I get what you're saying, but I do think that there is a white identity, especially when you consider it on a global level and we have to, and it's something I think You can't necessarily discount that white people do have a culture and white people do have certain things that they do within their cultural framework that, you know, necessarily that that do affect us and things that like we do. Like there are things that I know that white people do. And I'm like, yes, that's and I think that's and I think that's one of the insidious things about white supremacy is that they get away with not being able to say they have a culture. They're just a default. And it's like, no, you have a cultural setting the same way that I, as a black person, have a cultural setting the same way.
1: So you, let me ask you this then. I know we might deviate though for a minute. When I said that, it was more of like, I understand where you're coming. I understand what you're saying, Brent. Um, but I feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe this is me being educated. Um, when I say there's not a community, um, what I really meant was, or maybe I don't know what I'm saying. Um, I find it being here in New York, you have like a Russian community, a Italian community, an Irish community, but I don't really see them getting together unless it is for something of racist purposes.
2: Yeah, and I and I think I, I, I okay. So I think we're almost saying the same thing in some ways. So
0: okay yeah and I want to circle back to what Nick said, because I think he's saying something different because it has to do with writing, too. so yeah, I, so I,
2: I, the way I kind of take it is that like from what the way Nick was saying it is that like white people, whether regardless of ethnicity, tend to do these same certain things when it comes okay. to how they relate yes. to black people yes,
0: or, you're right. and they're okay. also not being and what Nick's saying too, is they're not being left out right? They have plenty yeah. of outlets to submit their work to across 100. the board. And so yeah. to get up in arms and say, well, I'm not being included in your call for BIPOC writers. Well, of course you're not. But you have countless other avenues to submit your work to. Right? 70% of the market <laughs> is
3: still, I think, white male, the last I heard on that. So like there's yeah, yeah, there's plenty of it- out there.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing. It's plenty of avenues, and it's always like the part that was the saddest thing about that whole situation for me was that what should have been a happy moment got turned into having to defend defend the mm-hmm. defend the joy, I guess. And it's always mm-hmm. that's what that's what's like being like a biopic right a editor, like when you do these things that are like focused on your communities, and it's supposed to be a joyous thing. It's Always, always, somebody
0: who has an issue with it, or who takes something that is. Sorry, Brent. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's that has come up. Maybe not blatantly in our just keep writing while black stuff, but at the same time, it's like if you are on the publishing side of you know, and you're black, and you're trying to bring people up, right? It's a, it, 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 and tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like even just if you announce something or try to do something, you're going to get this backlash, right. From yeah. the, the, the white writers that say, cause I mean, i I see it in the comments, like if you post something on Twitter, like I was following, there was something I was going to submit to and I can't remember what it was now. And they're like, I want, it was an agent that posted that says, I want, I want to focus on, I'm open for, to BIPOC writers, period. I'm not closed everybody else right now. And though that comment stream was insanity, right? Yeah. But really it's like, how dare you not include me? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. you are very included. We're not including you in this thing. You know yeah. what I mean?
2: Well, it I think the whole the whole crux of it is that they're not even mad about not being included. What they're really mad about is that how dare you recognize these lesser than people mm, like yep. you how how dare you try to change what i have always been comfortable with by giving these people a voice it's not that you know the and and, and i think a lot i think a lot of it is that also too i'm just gonna be frank i feel like a lot of it is that they're recognizing now that they just can't measure up and so now instead of actually accepting that they can't measure up they have to come up with a boogeyman and the boogeyman mm-hmm. is the BIPOC community. It's like, oh, when yeah. they get all these special chances, oh, the ages want them. Oh, yeah, it's like, yeah. your writing's just not good.
1: <laughs> it would help if your
0: writing was better,
1: right? <laughs> it's. Be- I also don't even think, it's like they don't recognize that they're already at an advantage. And yeah. even with that advantage, they still can't get a book deal. So you're going to complain. And that's the Um, privilege
0: thing too, that they, that they really, when you say, well, you have this advantage or embedded advantage already, you, as soon as you say that or say privilege, it's, you're up against it again. And that's something I see every, every day over here. You know what I mean? It's frustrating. Yeah. I
1: I think this is, I think I have a hard time wrapping my head around it because of the people I surround myself with who are white, who um, think you know, like they're inclusive, you know. As I mean, as much as I know that they are, that they think, yeah, they're the people who say that are crazy and racist. So I'm sorry if I stepped out of turn or I said something. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I don't. I, don't, I, don't. I, really mean,
2: talk, I got what you were saying. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I t- yeah. I totally understood what you were saying. I just think like sometimes what I feel like is that, and I, I say this to some of my white friends all the time. I'm, you know, I'm like. You guys get to get away with pretending like you don't have cultural norms and you don't have things that are very much set and in, baked into your communities, and yet you will turn on black people in the minute and be like, "Well, it's just our culture. It's the, your culture of like fatherless children, or you know, some other bullshit." So, so if, if you know, this is only the but negative stuff they caused- bring up. Yeah, yeah, and and it's like you know I always respond to white people. I'm like, well, you guys have a culture of passive aggressiveness. Y'all can't be real (laughs) about shit, and and it you know and it's like and it and it bleeds and it bleeds into it bleeds into everything. So it's like you know I just like to challenge that whenever it comes up. I'm like, no, white people, you definitely have a culture. You definitely have things that are you know you have a cultural framework.
1: Do you think that culture is like is a community?
2: I wouldn't. A community—it's it's a community based on male- malevolence. That's what I would say. It's not a community in the sense of let's uplift and let's look out for each other. Well, they are looking out for each other, actually. Just in—it's—it's in the it's, it's in way. It's in the sense of it's a community when, as long as there's another. Now, once the other is out the way, then of course they—they they, you know they turn on each other. But I think it's a community okay. that sometimes is based in what do we need to do to maintain our status? So I don't, okay. I, I don't think it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a community in terms of like family or like, you know, like that. But I think,
1: I think, I think when I think of community, like my frame of reference is like a close knit group of people who look out for each other. I, I think I, I view it as like a positive thing Yeah. more so. And also too, is like, I didn't really grow up like, I feel like most white kids did. Um, Yeah.
2: Well, uh, the reason I feel like community and this, this is going to bring my other identity into this, I guess the reason I feel like community can be malicious is that as a queer person, I have seen community and the viciousness that it can apply and the way it locks steps to keep out those that they don't think deserve to be a part of it. Like, the, the hetero black community is very much in lockstep about certain things when it comes to how black gay men are regarded and treated. And I, I wouldn't say they're any less of a community because of the negative things that they do. I just think community can be good and it can be evil. Uh,
3: Brand. I'm with you on that one. Uh, and that's kind of why I do say white community um, for, for the sense of you're being, it's like a grouping, right? Like you're part of the white community, whether it's there or not that's just what you are that's you know your group of people i guess you could say um as far as like labels goes um and i've talked to other people too like as a white community i think we need to be better about certain things um because if we don't do it as a collective it doesn't mean a lot to me if we're not all trying to do something to make change that's where i'm like
2: okay we got to do something about it well yeah and that's why i often often tell I often tell other white people i'm like look I can say it, but it's not going to have the same impact as if you say it.
3: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. biggest Biggest challenge I have with talking to other other folks that are white, where it's we need to make a change. It's not because there's a black editor who's doing. um, uh, And I always I always forget how to say it right. BiPoc, um, yeah, you know, I, I say BiPoc, <laughs> I guess, like, accepting BiPoc writers and stuff like that. That we need to encourage that. Like that is our job to help lift them up to make sure that their voices get heard as well. well.
0: Yeah. But That's also bringing up the art, right? That's bringing up everybody being able to write and do a thing and be part of publishing and be part of putting stories out into the world. Right. Uh-huh. It's not, I mean, and I think that's the, the, I don't know the frustration. I feel like with the, some of this stuff, it's like, well, is it because of what Brent said, where, where, you know, you're upset because, you know, a certain group might be better than you, so you feel threatened? Or is it like, there's plenty of space for everybody to write,
1: right? There's plenty of space out there. So And you, and you had decades of mediocre yeah. um, writing getting published and boo-hoo.
0: Yeah, so, now, so now that it's widening more and it's not, and, and schools are putting down the old white dudes and picking up the people of color that are producing these amazing stories. I mean, I, as an English teacher myself, this is something that, you know, we, we talk about all the time. It's like, I'm done teaching X, Y, and Z. How about this book? And as soon as we do it, Facebook blows up and says, they're making us read this thing about, you know, Mexicans crossing the border and stuff. It's like, yeah, it's an amazing story that should be read. And are we done? We got to be done with Mark Twain at some point, right? You know, or Dude, I don't want to hear about George and Lenny anymore. Yeah, and or yeah, exactly. But I feel like we're stuck with this, these chunks of books that were bought decades ago that are still sitting in libraries, and English teachers don't have much. So I actually, you know, a lot of us, what we do is we go out and we look for funding to bring other books in, you know what I mean? Because we're tired of teaching this stuff because the kids don't identify with it either. You know what I mean? Most of, you know, my uh, um, demographic in teaching were about 50% Hispanic. So it's like, okay, so why am I teaching this book then? I should be teaching this book instead, right? Or yeah. this short story as opposed to this one because this is the one that the kids are going to identify with, right? Um, right but yeah, I so, so go ahead. We'll say,
1: I think to that point, I don't think I saw the way that I grew up written until I read, uh, Juno Diaz drown. Um, it was the first moment that like, I like really identified with the rhythm of the language and, the the, um, the Spanglish of it all, you know, which was exactly what I grew up with. Um, So my next question, Brent, going into the editing, is not only are you part of the BIPOC community, but you're also part of the LGBT community. So there's intersectionality in that. And when you're editing, can you separate those two parts of you? for certain stories or are you always intersecting with both of them when you're looking at storytelling and what type of stories you gravitate towards, but also want to uplift?
2: I definitely cannot separate them. And I wouldn't want to, honestly, because that is, that is fundamental to me on both sides. And both, both of those aspects of me must be, brought to the table at all times. I, I don't have, I don't have the patience or the time to be uh, just a black person to a black person or just a queer person to a white person. I'm both and, and both will always be a part of my process and how I view stories and, you know, view the world. And, you know, it, it is not, I don't think of that either one as a hindrance either. I think of it as Those are strengths. Like, it doesn't take away my ability to read a story by a cishet white person or a cishet black person or a queer white person. Like I think all of those things, I think I I am able to edit those stories just as validly as as a cishet white editor would be able to. And I, I think it's important that, you know, BIPOC editors of every intersection don't necessarily try to piecemeal themselves because the world does that enough for us, so as editors, we should be trying to show a world where those two two things are three things or however, however many intersections you're dealing with can all exist in the same space.
1: that's great good answer um, Let's talk about though so editing you're part of these communities that sometimes can be conflicting or uh, I would say mixed messaging in some ways and let's give you this an example for the gay community as the gay community goes to drag shows embraces drag shows embraces uh RuPaul's Drag Race but on the same flip we have people in the gay community who won't date or say negative things about those people who are drag queens. It comes around to what's too femme, what's too mask. Um, you know, there's a lot of negativity in that. Do you feel like as an editor, are you seeing stories that are really nuanced and showing a spectrum within all of those communities? Like I'm just using that as an example. Like, you know, you have this division, right? Yeah. You, are um, you seeing more nuanced? Am I, am I making sense?
2: Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, you, are, you are making perfect sense. Um, yes, but what I will say, and this would kind of be my challenge to anyone listening is that unfortunately the most nuanced stories that I come across tend to be from the most marginalized people. So people who have the most intersections tend to, at least from my experience, tend to provide the most nuanced stories. And I would just, and this is just a, I'll just say this as a general thing to anybody listening is that make friends outside of your normal communities, reach a handout to people that you may not necessarily have ever saw yourself being friends with, because those experiences will enrich you and it will enrich your writing. And I can honestly say the friends I've made through publishing have tremendously like, made me a better writer in terms of just listening to them, listen to their experiences, listen to the things that that bother them, the things that they wish were better about the world. And, and I promise you, your writing will be better for it.
1: Go ahead, Nick.
3: Yeah, no, Brent, I'm really actually glad you said that because that's actually one thing that really helped me kind of get involved in the writing community was reaching out to others that weren't me. Uh, Marshall, Will here, like they're both perfect Literally how we became that. friends. <laughs> Look, I'm just going to say like it, it's helped me grow so much as a person, but I also say this with a bit of warning to the person that wants to do it there's a respectful way to do that and you need to kind of do your research on that um, ahead of time and make sure, you know, you're not going in and just throwing microaggressions around left and right, trying to get answers to questions. Like there's, there's a, there's a yeah. wrong way and a right way to do it. Uh, my recommendation on that is literally go make a friend, just go
2: be a friend. Yeah. To no, you're right. Yeah, Like, please don't collect us like Pokemon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and, and on that note too, it's like when Nick and I met, like we became friends fairly quickly, but then it's like, then some questions start coming to me. I was like, okay, what's going on here? But the, the funny thing is, is like, you can approach it in a couple of different ways, but the way Nick did it was not the way I'm about to introduce it. Like you'd be like, so why do black people do this? Why do black people do this? You know what I mean? Kind of thing. And it's like, or why do queer people do this? And it's like, oh boy. You know what I mean? There's there there are lots of ways to approach or to get your questions answered, right? Um, and so Nick and I, it took it I mean, what was it by the fifth or sixth round of questions? I'm yeah. like, all right, let's let's kind of approach this a little different. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So but it worked out. And and I feel like Nick is um he's such a beautiful human person now. Like, like, not that he wasn't then, but like when I first met him, like He literally was sitting me down. We're sitting on a beach in fucking Mexico. He's asking me these questions. And I'm just like, okay, I need to be here to answer these questions for this man, because he genuinely wants to know and he wants to be better. And I acknowledge that. And I took a deep breath a couple of times because I'm like, oh, that's a terrible way to ask that question. But (laughs) I knew what he was getting at. You know what I'm saying? And so there's, there's gotta be, you can't just stop a black man on the street while running or something like, Hey, why do black people do this? But like, but if you have a acquaintance or a friend friendship, you know, that's okay to ask those questions and say, look, I may be totally off base here, but I have to know this thing, you know, and depending on your relationship, you might get the answer that you might help you, you know? Yeah. Well, and
2: I would say, you know, the relationship, the interaction should start from a place of commonality, I feel like, most of the time. You don't want to run up to people and be like, hey, why do black people have this kind of hair? Like, nah, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> you like, dude,
0: come on. Can, Wait, I, touch can, it? It? Or can yeah, I touch it? Can I touch it first oh, and then dear, do you have this hair?
2: Dear God, <laughs> don't ever do it. Please, if you want to live. Ugh, um, but <laughs> So many days,
0: so many times.
2: Like, I have a very, I have, I have some strong relationships with you know white people in my life and we have had some of those frank conversations but we didn't start off like that it started off from a very you know easy friendly place like oh you like comics i like comics too talking about comics and then you know as let let it be organic like please don't take what i said and think like oh i have to collect a black person oh i gotta collect a a a mexican person oh i gotta collect someone who's disabled like don't do that like these these what I'm saying is expand your horizons as a person organically, like take the chance to, you know, take the chance to, and not, maybe not even necessarily make friends with people, but take the chance to read work outside of your experience. Like
1: that—that's that,
2: that's, that's a valid that's thing huge. too. Like, all right, look at your look at your bookshelf. Is your bookshelf all white people? That's a problem. Is your bookshelf all men? That's a problem. Like you need to. You got to you got you have to be intentional about your reading, and that's something I see a lot of writers of all stripes try to bullshit their way through. It's like, oh, I just like to read, you know, what catches my attention. It's like, how will you know if you haven't tried it yet?
3: Mm-hmm. That's
2: so on that, like, I Brent, that's something that
3: I think Marshall and will both have really stressed on me. Uh, and so, you know, every time you recommend a book too, I'm always writing it down. I, I got a list sitting in here somewhere. I think when it comes to my personal writing and feeling comfortable, kind of bring it back to editing, right? I, I've asked you to read a piece of mine, right? Right. Two years ago, three years ago, I wouldn't have asked you um, because I wouldn't have felt comfortable trying to portray uh, a character. There was a character of color, a person of color in my – hopefully I said that right. A person of color in my – um, <laughs> I, I, I'm all nervous all of a sudden In, in the story really uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, <laughs> You know You know Something going back three years When I was first starting this journey I don't know if I would have felt comfortable Having you read that without Me being too worried about Accidentally writing something That was a negative stereotype in, in any way And I really love that You're, you're suggesting go read outside You know of that my guilty pleasure is White male fantasy I know this. And so I don't read it anymore. Like when I just need to relax and chill, I'll do a repeat of a book. I'll find a new one. Right. But for the most part, I'm always trying to read something other than myself right now. Um, And that's helped out a lot, especially when it comes to this process.
2: Yeah. And and to even bring it back to um, our first, just keep writing while black episode, when we were talking with Nia and how we kind of talked about how, BIPOC writers in general, by the time our career starts, we, we tend to start at a higher skill level than the start of a white author's career. And part of that is because of all the hurdles we have to face just to get to that point. So I think just just by the numbers, if you're reading mostly BIPOC authors, you're probably reading mostly better writing just because we don't really get the opportunity that to be mediocre. We have to come out the gate swinging. So. Yeah, I, I think for if I was a white white person, like a white writer, trying to figure it out, I would be reading it for that just alone. Like, let me see what these people of color over here are doing, and they doing mm-hmm. right. Let me, you know, I mean, don't do that, but <laughs> 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 well, I'm just saying, like it's 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 it tends to be better writing. So I think it's just a, it's a positive to purposely read outside of your experience. I think. No, and then,
3: yeah. Let Let me ask you this so when, when it comes to editing and stuff like that. Um, for those writers that you've done some editing for and critiques for and stuff like that, can you tell that they don't read outside their sphere? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so obvious. Can you tell if like a BIPOC writer doesn't read outside their sphere as well? Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, have, I have it, a story in my head right now. I'm thinking about yeah, I just knew the person read only in genre and, and, and it showed. Mm. And, and you know, it. it's it, yeah. So I can definitely tell. Now, I, I think that's something you get with experience and with time. And what I also, to bring it back to editing and just like writing in general, what I also tell people, though, is that you're not going to be good until you're bad. You have to be bad first. So write those bad stories. Get them out your system. Like, just put keep putting pen to paper And keep being willing, keep having a spirit of openness that people can kind of point things out to you, like lovingly critique you and like build you up and whatnot. But you got to get the bad stories out. So if if you if you're a writer out there of any stripe and you're just thinking like, oh, God, I do not write the story. I'm going to fuck it up. Well, you got to. You got to fuck it up. That's the only way you're going to get good. (laughs) So just kind of accept that and and put pen to paper.
0: Look, I I love this conversation. And as the editor, we're going to wrap up eventually here, but I've, there's something that's been kind of sitting in my mind since we started this conversation. And it has to do with slush piles. And I know there's a lot of folks out there who have been, have put their work into the slush, right? Do you think, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to phrase the question, even though I've had plenty of time to think about it, but do you find that it's harder as a, I'm just going to say a queer BIPOC writer, editor, right. Going through a slush pile when you just ask for BIPOC work. That's interesting. Like, Is it harder to to say to like, I I like what you said earlier, where you said you don't say no right away, but is it, I, I feel like the way we've been told how slush piles work is as soon as the edit, you know, format's wrong, gone. You know, they did this wrong, gone. You know what I mean? Like, do you find that's a little bit different when you are, when you're asking for, like for FIA, for example, you're asking for just BIPOC work. Do you find that more difficult or is it about the same? I'm just curious.
2: It is. Okay. So I guess the best answer to uh, to that question would be, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little more difficult, but I also think it's more valuable. And um, yeah. what I would say is that Yes, the way you're talking about most slush piles, like at a lot of magazines, that's magazines, publications, whatever, that's how it works. They, they're they getting bombarded. And, and, and you know, this isn't to slander them, but they get bombarded with submissions. They have to work mm-hmm. through them. They have, because writers do expect, you know, turnaround on submissions and whatnot. And so they have to work through them. They have to make these very cutthroat decisions about, you know, how to reject stories. But one of the things that, um, the fire team especially decided and I think it's valuable is that we know that like black writers don't necessarily get feedback. They don't necessarily know, is it my story or is it a race thing? Mm-hmm. or You know? And so one of the things we kind of intentionally set out to do was, okay, we're going to give feedback to every story that comes in just about, unless it's just like not speculative or blatantly, like just out of pocket. But the, that was a decision to ultimately it was a community-based decision that we wanted to uplift, you know, the black writers that, that, you know, submitted the work to us. um But yes, it, it, it does. It, it, it involves more time. It involves a lot more thoughtfulness. um And I mean, I think it's worth it, but you know, that's, that's part of that. Unfortunately, uh BIPOC editors, writers, we have to do the lifting that, you know, of trying to make the community better of trying to create a safer space for BIPOC writers. And yeah, so it does make it more difficult.
0: But I, I, I think what you said there is super important. Um, and I don't know when, I don't know how many more questions Will has, but I think this is important because you said community, the fact that you are giving feedback which I appreciate from Fire because I have submitted to Fire but I love the feedback because you get it and you it's not a form letter it's not a you know it's like this these are the reasons right and that part of it makes you want to keep going rather than being beaten down by rejections you know what I mean and I think that right. keeps the the BIPOC community makes you want to keep submitting strictly to those publications and calls for for stories and stuff too because you know that they're going to spend a little bit more time with your stuff you know and i I think that's super important
2: right and i and i feel really bad about the one for black future month because i I did have to send some forms out for it this month just because my time has become so much more crunched lately but um you know there's still a few i'm I'm definitely trying to do personal feedback for because I, i i want that like and I think, I think that would be something else I say to writers out there. Understand that most editors, especially if they're BIPOC editors, like we're rooting for you. We want you to win. Like we want your story to be <laughs> phenomenal. Like we like every time, like literally none of us are clicking on the document thinking, oh God, I hope this story is mediocre. Like, no, we want, the, <laughs> we want that story to be fucking fantastic. So yeah. just know like you when you're sending that work to like a divine or or an ebony or a me or to Diana Fu or to whoever like you just understand like those edit, those editors are rooting for you like they want your best work to come to them because they want to be able to elevate you they want like um like for instance P Shirley Clark his debut novel came out today. His short story that started that whole universe got picked up by Diana in a Facebook thread, like Diana actually messaged me. Like, hey, send oh, me wow. the story. So like, <laughs> so I, so I just, I would like writers to understand that like editors, are, editors are not your enemy. They are not rejecting you to hurt your feelings. Like they, they are on your side and they want you to win. So yeah, <laughs> if, if that saw, if that lessens the blow of rejections just a little bit, I, I would hope that does, but um, yeah, just, just keep that in mind.
3: Well, And real quick, too, like kind of what Marshall just said, Brent, kind of just speaks to what you guys go up fire is like Marshall got feedback from people that understood his story. And I I, again, Marshall, we've been doing this for three years together, and I can't tell you how many times you've been in a critique and come back and basically been disappointed with the feedback because they missed the entirety of it. And so, you know, for anyone listening out there, like yo brent's your man like follow brent he's gonna he won't lead you astray on this one and if you're, you're a bipoc writer like and you need that good feedback you need to find people that understand like this is it like right here
2: like love hearing well, that I, and i think you have to at least for me you have to understand what you don't understand and i've often put that editorial note in in stuff like stories like i didn't get i'm like okay before I say this doesn't work, am I missing it? I'll put that note in the story and I'll say, "Hey, before I before I say this is something that's not working, am I missing something culturally? Is this is this you know?" So ask questions. Like if your editor's not asking you questions as they're giving you feedback on your story, they probably. I'm not gonna say that they're, they're bad editing because that's that's that that would be a stretch, but. I, I would just question the the strength of the writer editor relationship there. Because whenever I send feedback, I make sure I ask questions if like if I'm not sure about something. I'll say, hey, did you mean to do this? Or were you looking to do this? And you know, let 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 it be it needs to be some it needs to be a relationship. It needs to be back and forth.
1: Okay, I'm gonna ask my next question. Yes. Um my next question, Brent, is how important do you think it is as an editor? to have writers write the other. And I'm and I mean this with even within the BIPOC community and not having them write white characters. I mean just like the other like really thinking about the inner dynamics of society.
2: Yeah, um I think it's absolutely vital that they do that. But I put it with this caveat. Just because you're writing it does not mean it needs to be published. So <laughs> You you can write the other. You should write the other. I think you absolutely should write the other. But don't think that the first story you write about a black lesbian should go out there to publishers. No, maybe maybe keep it in the trunk. Uh, it's okay to keep stories in the trunk. Like not everything has to to be sold. Um, especially when you're writing outside of your experience and you're trying to you're trying to enhance your worldview. That's totally valid. I think that's totally okay. It just doesn't always mean that you need to be paid for it, or that the public needs to consume your learning experience. So uh-huh. do it, but do it with that caveat. Like,
3: like you said, Brent, and I quote you: "You got to write that bad shit too." <laughs> yeah, absolutely,
2: <laughs> write the bad shit. You got. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely have to write the bad shit. Like it's just part of the process. You you're not good until you until you're bad. You have to be bad yeah. first, but just because I mean, I oh god, I have so I have some stories. I would never want them to see the light of day. I would come back <laughs> to the grave if somebody tried to publish those. Like it, it, you you. But you have to have them. You have to have those stories because I, that's the only way you're going to grow. You have to make mistakes. It's I I I equated a lot of times to like working out too, because uh, it, it, those metaphors make sense to me. But it's like you have to you have to start off with 15s before you can jump to 50s. Like, you can't come in the gym and grab a 50 and think you're going to be able to, you know, pound it out. Like, you have to accept where you're at and grow from there. And, and part of that growth is you got to tear the muscles. You got to be sore. You got to, you got to, um, you got to recover. You got to do all those things. So I think that the same, the same steps apply to writing in its own fashion. So if you want to grow, you got to get in, you got to get in there and you got to pump the iron, but you got to, that doesn't necessarily mean you need to jump on the competition stage.
1: Okay. My next and last question. What keeps you editing professionally?
2: Ooh, okay. Um, I would say it's I have a I really, really love I love stories. Like I love stories and I love the joy that writers get. I love seeing the joy that writers have when their stories come out into the world. And when they get beautiful receptions and that people love their work. And I cannot tell you the amount of like pride I feel whenever somebody tweets at fire and they're like, you guys are publishing my very first story ever. I actually feel like a real writer. Like this, this is, this is changing everything for me. Like that, 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 that will never get old to me. That will always like just fill my heart. And um, so with Breathe Fire, there was a few writers who had really, really great receptions to their stories and they really were happy with it. And, you know, they they actually formed relationships with some of them behind it. And it, that to me is just like that to me is my biggest joy. That's what keeps me editing is just the idea of helping other writers get out into the world and to have their best work seen. And yeah, that that's incredible to me. It will never get
1: old. That's awesome.
0: So is this the part of the interview where we thank him for coming and then we, we ask him how we could find him on social media and so No, I'm just kidding. Well, all, no, that's, all that's
1: in the notes, but, um, this is going to be just part one of editing I think because so we're going to do part two, uh, and part two, we're going to talk to Brent about how he goes about, we're going to get his editing advice for self-editing and how he self-edits. And then we're all going to jump in and talk about it. Um, but I, I hope that. you feel good about this episode, Brent.
2: No, this was great. I really, I really like this. This is some, you know, I I feel like I could talk about this for another hour easily. Yeah, no, I, this, this is a great topic.
0: Well, good, because we're going to have part two and we're going to grow you some more. And uh, this has been really, really awesome, man. And we love having you on our, just keep writing team, obviously. But um, sometimes, you know we're sitting around, we're BSing, and you know, we're recording regular shows and stuff. And sometimes I'm just like, uh, being able to turn around and ask you interview like questions and get those nuggets out of you, I think is super important. So, we're glad to have you, man. And, um, you can find him in our show notes and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll be all in there, <laughs> and he'll be on <laughs> the next shows and blah blah. <laughs> And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.